0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. The show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 204 with Bob Sutton. Bob is one of the world's foremost authorities on Jerk holes. We are relabeling the naughty word (laughs) just for the sake of our iTunes clean rating, but he wrote the no jerk hole rule and the now jerk hole survival guide. So it's great stuff. And I think if you can relate to having worked with some folks who are not so kind, this is a key episode for you. So you'll walk away learning one, internal mind tricks to help you cope with jerks. Two, how to use the Benjamin Franklin effect to win over jerks. And three, how and when to fight back. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we're referencing here, that's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F204. That's the letters E-P and the numerals 204. Now here's Bob's story. Robert Sutton is a professor of management science and engineering at Stanford University. He co-founded the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, known as the D School. He is a fellow at IDEO, a senior scientist at Gallup, and an advisor to McKinsey & Company. Sutton studies organizational change, leadership, innovation, and workplace dynamics. He has published over 150 articles and chapters and written seven books. Sutton's latest book is the Jerkhole Survival Guide, How to Deal with People Who Treat You Like Dirt. So, thanks to Bob for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here's Bob. Bob, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be here and great to talk to you, Pete. Well, in learning a little bit about you, I I got a real kick out of you know, you mentioned that you believe you have the worst high school GPA of any Stanford professor. I'd love to hear, you know, what's the backstory? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I love the question you start with so we can establish my credentials immediately. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I went to Burlingame High School. is just about 15 miles up the road from uh, Stanford, and I was not a distinguished member of my class. And uh, I just, I, you know, I... I, I Fell into uh, sort of like a group of friends, none of whom were very academic. Nobody in my family was particularly academic, and uh, I thought I was going to go into the family business. But uh, and and I it was also uh, during the sort of counterculture movement in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area from 1968 to 1972, and all the institutions were becoming unglued, and uh, I just wasn't that focused on school. The one thing I will say with my a great point average, which was 1.9 after my junior year and 2.1 after my senior year, because I took pottery in my senior year <laughs> B, but I had almost no Cs. I had uh, A's and B's and D's and F's. So either I was really into it or I was terrible, uh, which I think has continued for the rest of my career. And when I went to college. I figured out that uh, I could take mostly things I like, so I mostly got A's. And and uh, I also um, started realizing that um, if I got good grades, that maybe I could do something other than go into the family business. And in California, we ha- have and we had... Then and and still have a community college system that feeds you into the uh, UC system. So I actually got very good grades in community college and was able to go to the University of California at Berkeley. So I was really saved by by a good community college system. So I got an excellent education after I left high school. But uh, yeah, I was not a very and I had a bad attitude too. That's one thing. Speaking of the uh, the topic we're talking about today, (laughs) is I always tell people if you're incompetent, at least be nice. I was not competent nor nice. So that didn't help.
0: But but you managed to turn it around. And so that's fantastic. And you have a very compelling book title, you know, that we're going to chat through here. And just to keep our iTunes clean rating, I'll paraphrase a bit. The Jerk Hole Survival Guide, if you will, how to deal with people who treat you like dirt. So that is a captivating issue. I think it affects a whole lot of people. So, you know, what's your inspiration behind this?
1: Well, my career, at at least my, traditional academic career has focused mostly on leadership. We're discussing innovation and creativity, but sort of accidentally, I guess early in my career, I did do some research on the expression of emotion in organizational life. The notion that, um, being able to suppress certain emotions and express others is one of the things that we're paid for. So if you're in a customer service occupation or you're a judge or something, that's one of the things you're actually paid for. Um, but, but, uh, the way I got involved in this somewhat accidentally was in 2004. Uh, I was asked by the Harvard Business Review. Julia Kirby was the editor then. And she said, um, Could you write an essay on breakthrough ideas? And I said, Well, Julia, I have an idea for um, something I want to write about that I feel really strongly about. Uh, it was in part because in my academic department in those days, we had a quote unquote no jerk rule. and Also, at the time, my wife was running a large law firm and dealing with jerks was a big part of her job. So I had this kind of going on in my head. And so I wrote this 800 word essay that had the censored no a-hole or jerk hole, (laughs) whatever rule in it. And I've written stuff for the Harvard Business Review before, and usually I'll get a few emails or maybe one speaking gig or something. I got hundreds of emails where people would just deluge with the stories they had of their bad bosses, their bad coworkers, their abusive customers, and uh, so that led me to write – what was sort of the first installment of uh, of this adventure back in 2007, I wrote uh, I, I, I've got to stay with the language, mm-hmm. the no mm-hmm. jerk rule. so we're still being good for iTunes, the no jerk hole rule and uh, that book sold very well and I said I'd never do another book again, but I kept getting all these emails um, and 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 even though that book was mostly about how to build a relatively jerk free culture, the Most of the emails and thousands of them, the first uh, chapter of the book is called 8,000 emails of the, of the uh, survival guide. They were essentially all asking the same question, which is, I am stuck with a jerk or a bunch of them. What do I do? And everything from CEOs to Costco employees. to I actually got quite a few emails from clergy, <laughs> in rabbis, priests, baptists. Ministers, uh, a lot about actually difficult parishioners. So uh, I try to respond to them individually. And I also started collecting the huge academic research on bullying, abusive supervision, and so on. And I did other things. Like you mentioned, I was involved in the Stanford D School and uh, I did some work on scaling and leadership. But I eventually went back to it and wrote this book um, in part because I had thought so much and had answered so many emails and still I I get probably an email a day still from somebody who sends me their story about the jerk they're dealing with and they ask um, for help. And I I didn't mean to become the dear Abby of the jerk world, (laughs) but here I am. so been an odd lot
0: Well, it's clear that you've struck a nerve. And so I'd love to hear that maybe if you get a lot of stories, could you give us sort of a hopeful note? Do you have any cool sort of before after stories to show there's hope?
1: Yeah. yeah. So there actually is a lot of hope. And um, in fact, if you go to the academic uh, research, the Workplace Bullying Institute has a lot, done a lot of research on workplace bullying. When people are being bullied, it, it's usually less than 10% of the population. of the population, something like that, who report they're being bullied now and sort of experiencing relatively constant bullying. But if you go back um, a year later, most of those people are in a different situation or their situation has changed. So there's hope ahead if you just wait or uh, find a way to get out. So that's important. And and yes, I have gotten some amazing stories. Uh, A couple of my favorite ones, one, a woman who was a professor. Since I'm a professor, I could relate to this. She had all these jerks in her academic department. And so she said, I just had to get out. And she moved to a different department where uh, they not only paid her more money, they gave her tenure and she had nice colleagues. So that was good. And she would write me a thank you note. And one of my favorite ones was lawyers. And I married to a lawyer. So I understand that not all lawyers are jerks. But but a woman who was a lawyer, she quit her job and she gave her resignation letter in a copy of the No A Hole or No Fool <laughs> to her boss. We can talk about quitting because that's in the book. I don't necessarily recommend quitting in that um way unless you have other options. But it was pretty funny. So yeah, I think I think that there. There, there is hope, and then uh, I mean another theme, which which is a, a a big hope and also a solution, is is that there are quite a few companies that ha- that really are serious about having no jerk rules and don't allow nastiness to flourish. And uh, one of my favorite ones, uh, their headquarters in Milwaukee is called Baird. So they used to be called W R Baird, but they kind of rebranded themselves as Baird. They're a quite large financial services firm. And they're number four on the best place to work list. Uh, And Paul Purcell, who's the chairman, now CEO, we even got him to blur the book. Uh, He claims that they've built their reputation and, considerable financial success on the fact that they have the no jerk rule, but they use the same word I do that we're censoring. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there is hope. There's hope both for for some organizations are better than others. And if you're in a difficult situation, you can survive and things um, can get better and uh, usually do.
0: Well, that's awesome to hear. And so I'd love to now dig into some of these strategies, you know, maybe going from big to small in terms of one, you know, a full escape or a clean getaway, you know, how might we orchestrate that?
1: Yeah. So there's a large body of research, given that, um, given the focus of of your podcast, this might be especially um, interesting. There there is a large body of research you may have even talked about um, on your podcast before, this notion that, people quit bad bosses, not bad organizations. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of evidence that if you can just get away from a bad team or a bad organization and even move to a different part of the same organization, it's enormously helpful. And for me, there are some times when you you do need to quit and go on to another organization. If it's a small organization, if the options in your large organization are not good but 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 um the main advice that i give people who are thinking about quitting are are twofold one uh before you storm out the door or just quit quietly why don't you know what are your options uh can you still afford to feed your family? Cause mm-hmm. I've had stories of people who quit and then they're sort of left with nothing. Um, and, and then the other, the other, the other, what, what other job options do you have? And then the other thing has to do with the way that you do it. There's a guy I talk about, um, in the book, uh, some people may remember from 1910 or so 2010 or so, uh, uh Stefan Slater, who was a jet blue flight attendant and, and we all know how hard it is to be a flight attendant. I mean, mm-hmm. bless those people. They put up, I mean, we hear the stories about when flight attendants are bad, but on a day-to-day basis, they put up with so much abuse from passengers and from all sorts of directions. So uh, so he had some very abusive passengers who were yelling at him. And as the plane landed, uh, one of them got out of her seat while the plane was still taxing, opened up the luggage um, compartment and the um, luggage fell on his head and hit him really hard mm. he got really mad he got on the microphone he cussed everybody out on the plane and then when the um, plane stopped some people may remember this story he pulled the em- emergency escape slide he took two beers and he just slid out and he left so it's pretty <laughs> just classic take this job and shove it straight out <laughs> of the johnny paycheck um you know playbook the, the the guy who wrote that song johnny paycheck but uh that guy, I mean, he got fired. He got on probation. He had to pay a fine. He felt terrible afterwards. So my perspective is there are some times when burning bridges is a dramatic, wonderful thing to do, but you kind of got to look at the situation you're in. It's a long life and uh, you might want to do it quietly. You might want to do it in a way that doesn't burn bridges Uh, every now and then. I mean, it might actually work. Some people did write me stories about uh, about sort of storming out, and I was one of the best things they did. Or the woman I just described who gave her boss the resignation letter inside of uh, of the 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 no uh, jerk um, rule book. But uh, but I, defending, we all know this. It's a long life, and uh, and and burning bridges is, can be a mistake.
0: Understood. Yeah. And sometimes you're right. You're kind of stuck with regard to you got to have the income flowing. So then, right? you know, if you're in the thick of it, what are some best practices to reducing your exposure or working with that?
1: Yeah. So to me, there's two kinds of, and, you know, to your point, there's a whole bunch of situations. And I think of some of the people who I talk about in the book, people who are cadets at West Point or the US Air Force a- Academy you know that the first year is going to be hazing and it's going to suck that's just the way it's going to be you got to get through it somehow to one guy wanted to be a pilot uh, one of one of my heroes Becky Margiada who is one of the heroes of one of the chapters uh she went on besides being in special operations to lead something called the 100,000 Homes campaign that found homes for more than a hundred thousand homeless americans she did great things but she didn't get through some really difficult times or people will write me that they're a year from retirement before they get great benefits and they just got this terrible boss they just got to get through it so so there are there are times when when you've just uh got to take it and to me there's two kinds of strategies i emphasize in the book one is when you're in this situation with the nasty people Do what you can to um, limit it. I sort of teach it, think of it as almost like kryptonite or something, like this toxic substance that to the extent you can reduce your exposure to the people, um, both the strength of the exposure and the frequency of the exposure, you will be in better shape. And and one of the, the findings, and there's some really good recent research and especially, I'd imagine many of, your openers are, many of your listeners are in open offices. Right. Um, if you're in an open office, it turns out that the people who sit really close to you have a huge effect on uh, both your mental health, your productivity. And it turns out that if if you're sitting, especially within 25 feet or so of, of a toxic person, the chances you're going to turn toxic because it's a very contagious thing, and or you're going to get fired or quite high. That's the bad news. The good news is if you're sitting around some really competent people, they lift you up. So within the limitations of where you can uh, place or move your desk, it can be very powerful. Or maybe you can, uh, I give an example in the book of a, of a professor I know who shall remain unnamed, who was just this terrible jerk. He was just horrible he was just flamed everybody and he got a big research grant. So what they did was they found him a building off campus really far away. Oh, that's good. And they said, we've got these beautiful new location for you because you have such a big team and everybody was so happy. He was happy. They were happy and he didn't even realize that he'd been sort of distanced. but, but there's a whole bunch of other ways to find ways to reduce distance. Uh, the number of meetings that you have with people, um, it's to me, it's it's really an important thing to find. It's just to reduce your exposure to the extent that you can, and so that's one set of strategies. The other set of strategies I call these uh, uh mind mind tricks, uh and um or what they really are are they're based on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most widely used therapy in the world and also uh, the most evidence based uh, therapy in the world, and uh, the co- the concept of uh uh. Um, especially reframing, which is what I talk about are these mind tricks are, you don't change the situation. You change how you think about it. All right. And sometimes you just, we're just in those bad situations and you just got to get through it. And some of the things that I especially like, one is when you're dealing with a jerk, uh, I call the sympathy for the devil. Try to have, some sympathy for the person and, and, and some forgiveness. And the research on forgiveness is really interesting because if you forgive somebody who slighted you, it may not help them and they may not deserve it. But one thing to keep in mind from the research on forgiveness is when you forgive people, it redu- reduces the amount of angst and uh, physical and mental health problems you suffer as a result. So that's that's one thing you can do. Another thing I talk about is humor, that that idea of joking around the water cooler can actually be quite powerful. Uh, one of the most evidence-based mind tricks or reframing techniques, one that's really got a lot of research behind it, is this thing that's called temporal distancing, or I call it imaginary time travel. So if, if you've got a jerk, and, and, and there's great experiments for all sorts of bad things in life, and if you can say to yourself, rather than focusing on how upset you are now, Gee, when I look at back at the, back at this this weekend, say it 's a bad client, um, or next month or even next year it 's really going to seem like nothing and and, and, and then I, it 's so powerful just to give you an example, one guy who wrote me about how he went through the u s Air Force Academy, and his whole goal was to fly, so when he was a first and second year cadet you know, they're hazed by upperclassmen. And he said, so what I'd say to myself is as they were yelling at me or, or taunting me or, or making me do some stupid chore, like, you know, cleaning things with a toothbrush, things like that. He say, I'd say to myself when, when I'm flying and I'm in that plane a few years from now, when I look back on this, it'll be nothing. And he said, in fact, it really worked. So that's that's one of those sort of tactics, and uh, I guess finally a favorite one, and I've got a whole bunch of ones in the in the book, is uh, the idea of emotional detachment. So trying to focus less on what's upsetting you and more, if you will, on the good parts to have some distance, uh, nurses. So uh, if you look at research on which occupations Uh, tend to be most abused. And you think about poor nurses, they've got uh, patients, they've got doctors, they've got hospital administrators, they've got each other. I mean, there's people who are just sort of like giving them grief all day long. It's a really tough job. And some of the research on emotional detachment in nurses is what they'll do the healthy ones is they'll turn out everything but focusing on serving their patients' needs. And that helps them do two things. It helps them focus on what really matters and it helps them tune out the, 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 the junk or the crap or whatever. Uh, and uh, so those are just some examples. The main thing you're trying to do is to create some distance so that the upsetting person, it, it just doesn't seem so bad. And, and that way you can get through to the other side, if you will.
0: Oh, there's so much good stuff I'd love to dig into a little bit here. And when you talk about emotional detachment, that reminds me of when I had a director. I was doing like a uh-huh. community theater and she just had such a tone in her voice. Like it was full of like rage or disgust with my I don't, performance or what I was doing wrong and all these things. And so I don't know if there's some research behind this, but my trick was I just pretended I like mentally transcribed what she was saying and then I was just like, I was reading it. So if she said, Pete, you're coming out too soon. Would just uh-huh. be like, I just read it. Pete, you're coming out too soon. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> God, I really like that. I, I've actually not – I've heard other detachment strategies, but what what you're doing is you're re-encoding it so the nastiness is removed and you're just left with the helpful content. Right. So that, actually that's, that's a really healthy uh, perspective. And some of that, that – that director is really interesting because uh, – And this is another one of of the themes that comes out of the research on jerks and nasty behavior of all time, all kinds. Very often when people are hostile to others or ignore them in other ways, treat them badly, they're actually quite clueless Mm. to the way their message is being received. And uh, for a director, all directors have to give directions and, and be candid about your performance to help you improve it and make tough decisions. But uh, but I, I bet you that she didn't even realize that she was being that hostile. But I love how you did the re-encoding. I think that's a fabulous coping approach.
0: Well, thank you. And I want to hear a little bit about your know, forgiveness. I mean, sort of in practice... When it comes to forgiveness, I'm imagining what one is doing is not so much looking at the jerk in the face and saying, I forgive you, but rather doing something else. And what is the nuts and bolts of executing forgiving?
1: It is interesting because, and there's quite a large experimental literature on forgiveness. In fact, telling an asshole, (laughs) I I finally, telling a jerk uh, that you forgive them, (laughs) is sometimes it depends on the jerk Uh in in some cases if they're unaware of it and they don't want to hurt you then it it, it's it it can be okay but in some cases they get all excited because they want to just even make you feel worse if they're treating you as a power move but but the 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 way uh the way to forgive them in in many cases if, if if you can't have that conversation which you usually can't is to kind of forgive them in your heart and so uh, two of the ones that I've heard, and sometimes they're actually true, but sometimes they're just a, a, a way to sort of talk yourself down. It, it, one of the first ones I heard was actually um, at Google. It says, this is a long time ago, 10 years ago. I was giving a talk um, about uh, jerks when my first book came out on jerks. And one of the people, you know, Google, is, and this is in the days when Google was sort of a little, little cute company. They're not little and cute now. And I remember this really sort of like bouncy engineer. She raises her hand and she says, oh, so we call people like that. There are people who have good operating systems and a bad user interface. Oh. and you say, I think some of in some ways I'm going back to your director maybe your director was like that too the, the 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 you know the user interface was kind of tough but once you got through it the stuff underneath was pretty good. And yeah. so that's one, one way you can do it. And then the, the, the other one, uh, the, the other expression, which is, uh, I guess, a, a, a non-nerd version of it is a, that the person is a porcupine with a heart of gold. And there are people like that who have bad interpersonal skills and don't have a really lot of emotional control. But underneath it, they're actually great, wonderful people in their, if they were, if you will, they're worth putting up with. But the main thing about the research on forgiveness that's really quite interesting is uh, to remind yourself is that even if it doesn't help the offender in question, it actually helps you. Uh, it helps your mental health, and it means that way that they don't hurt you as much, so you sort of win in the end. You can sort of tell yourself that. Uh, a related technique that, uh, that, that I talk about in the book I hadn't talked about uh, before is this idea of uh, rising above it. So... When people treat you like dirt, uh, you tell yourself you're not going to stoop to their level. Um, and that's a quite effective strategy. And uh, I, the example I use in the book is uh, I'm out here in California and we have a, a, a kind of newest chain of coffee stores that that's called Phil's Coffee. Mm-hmm. And the whole concept of Phil's uh, is it's actually not espresso. It's you and the barista, and the barista makes this custom cup of coffee coffee. Uh, just exactly the way you like it. They call it cups of love. But the CEO, Jacob Jabber, and then we interviewed some of the baristas there. They have this philosophy that when people are nasty, that you kill them with kindness. That's their philosophy because you don't want to stoop to their level. And our philosophy is that if somebody's a jerk, we're actually, we're better than that. We're not going to go to that level. So that's another one of those, if you will, kind of mind tricks to enhance Your opinion of yourself, so you suffer less. But I I really like your uh, perspective with the director because that sounds to me like a a very emotionally healthy thing to do. Oh, thank you.
0: Well, and I'm thinking about killing them with kindness. I mean, we had a previous guest. Her name is Maura Sweeney, and she told an amazing story of someone who just really talked trash about her up and down, like to all across to different people. Uh And so she summoned that person, said, "Hey." You know, I think I owe you an apology, I had no idea that you had these concerns with me and my approach and my leadership style. And I would apologize that I don't know what it is I did that made you feel like you couldn't share that with me directly. But I want you to know Uh. that you can. And I care about what you think. And I want to make this uh, a good environment for you. And so he must have just been skin was crawling. like, "Ah."
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, and it turned it around real quick. So it is interesting. So there's a, a there's a great book. and he even has a clean name uh, called <laughs> Radical Candor. I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's by a woman named Kim Scott. Oh, we had her on the show. She's fantastic. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, it's funny. I, I have a podcast. I interviewed Kim Scott too. She's unbelievable. And 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 that to me is it, it sounds to me it's one of those situations where where that person who she uh, confronted gently was not doing radical candor, and the message was being sent me the truth. Don't stab me in the back. Let's talk about this this directly. I'd you had Kim Scott. I'm a huge Kim Scott fan, and that is a great book. Radical Candor. Um but uh but 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 yeah, I I really uh, I really um like that. Oh th- there is another technique that that we hadn't talked about, and this is somewhere between, well, if you have somebody who's a jerk, we can talk about confronting them, but there's a whole bunch of things. When, when people are treating you badly, that sometimes you, you can bring them around. So I really like your guest philosophy. One is um, th- there's good evidence that when people are in positions where they have some influence over you, so the ultimate is the Department of Motor Vehicles employees. Mm-hmm. But at Stanford, I would say it's the people who do our budget approval would fit into this category. They're people who have influence other, over other people, but they don't have prestige or respect. There's all sorts of evidence that when you put people in a position like that, they turn fairly nasty and also quite picky. They become rule Nazis because it's a way they can exercise control and exact revenge on people who are treating them badly. And one of the solutions is is to actually treat them with respect and to be nice to them, and they sometimes will come around. And then there's another effect I talk about in the book, which reminds me almost of the example you're talking about. Um, which is, I call it the Benjamin Franklin effect in the book. And it goes back to an old story with Benjamin Franklin where, uh, that he wrote about that he had a hater, somebody who was saying bad things about him behind his back when he was a young man, when Benjamin Franklin was a young man. So Franklin went to him and rather than attacking him, uh, he said, he asked if he could borrow a book from him because he'd heard he had a great library. So, So this guy does him a favor, loans him the book, and then Benjamin Franklin writes him back a letter telling him how much he appreciates it. And the trick is, is that Benjamin Franklin got the guy to do a favor for him. And there's, there's a bunch of research on uh, cognitive dissonance, cognitive consistency. Some of your listeners may have heard of this from the like, introduction in psychology, that the notion that I'm doing a favor for you, yet I don't like you, it's hard to align those things. So the more favors that somebody does for you, the more they're going to like you. So, so th- th- this trick of trying, and it's, it is sort of a trick, but getting other people to help you Who are not being nice to you is another way to sort of bring them around on your side. And in some way, the woman you're talking about was doing something like that. She was kind of asking him for help. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, that is good. I like the perspective.
0: Well, and and just to make sure I hit the forgiveness part, you talk about, you know, you do the forgiveness in your heart as opposed to informing them. So, in practice, like, what are you saying to yourself? Like, I forgive name of jerk for this.
1: Yeah, or, or you can have sympathy for the devil. Like, I, uh-huh. I know they treat me like dirt, but they've had a terrible life, and, and, I, and I can't really blame them. Uh, I, 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 I or I forgive them. Uh, I'm thinking back to your director, I'm sorry, because although they may be nasty, it's, it's, the, it's the old notion of that, uh, that, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, where there's a poop, there's, where there's poop, there's a pony, there's a you know, pony <laughs> under that old Ronald Reagan line. And um, the, the notion that although they're, they're giving me all this grief, that I'm still taking away stuff that's so good from them. So I will forgive them. So, and and i'm not recommending this this completely but it is one way if you will to sort of get through um a relatively at least rough period or or to especially after your relationship with somebody is over to not like hold that bitterness because that bitterness and that anger it, it all the research is is, is independently of whether or not the person deserves it, it's actually not that good for us. You know, mm-hmm. that said, uh, I mean, it's a little bit like any other abusive relationships. We could maybe we should switch gears and talk about fighting back. There are some people uh, in some situations where both because they're repeat offenders and um, And if you have a way, uh, some power some solution that sometimes you can fight back and you can bring them down. And uh, there's many times when that is worth doing uh, because the person's a jerk and they're hurting others, not just you. And because perhaps you can win and clear the way for your own mental health and productivity.
0: All right. Well, let's do talk about the fighting back sort of under what circumstances is that a good move and how should we do it well?
1: Well, so there's two or three things that I really look for or or advise people. The first thing is uh, the tendency might be to fight and argue back, but you might want to sort of look and see, sort of it's almost how, what resources you have to fight back with. One is old-fashioned power. Well, and I, I just was thinking of my uh, my uh, you know uh, uh, what do you call it? this guy Paul Purcell, who uh, was CEO and is now chairman of Baird he, he CEO and he would tell people during uh job interviews that if he discovers they're a jerk, he's going to fire them. And, and he did fire people for that. Right. So that, that's, that's the ultimate case, right? So you actually can get rid of them. You don't usually, most of us don't usually have that much power to deal with mm-hmm. jerks, but the more power you have uh, the better situation that you're in. And you got to be really careful with that because a lot of us overestimate how much power they have. I I had this, series of exchanges with the head of HR of a, of a large company. And she wrote me and she said, uh, so we're, um, we're putting in a no jerk rule and I've talked to the CEO and uh, we're going to fire our two or three worst jerks who are senior executives. And I wrote her back and I said, you sure you have enough power? You're a new head of HR. She said, yes, I've got the CEO on board. And then three weeks later she was fired. So you got to really make sure you really do have the power. And then some of the other ones is, and this is related to power, is that the more allies you have on your side, uh, the better position you're in. So if you have a boss who's a jerk, um, or if you have a colleague who's a jerk, or even a customer, the more people who can document that uh, that that um, you're not crazy, uh, that, that there's a bunch of you, the more power you have, and then I already implied it, uh, both for legal reasons, for uh, getting HR on your side, uh, for getting out of a he said, she said situation. Anything you can do that's legal, I should emphasize, uh, to, that can document somebody who's treating you badly puts you in a more powerful position. And and th- there's some other factors there, but for me, just sort of stopping and doing the analysis, which is how much power do I have? Do I have allies and how strong is my evidence? To the extent you can do that, um, you are more likely to win. And then And then uh, the other thing is kind of, What kind of jerk are you dealing with? Uh, One of my really important lessons that I've learned over the years, is, and I've already implied this, is there's lots of people who are jerks who are clueless and don't mean to come across that way. And sometimes the way you can get them to change is, is to, and and again, I like your guess, you can just sometimes pull them aside and say, I'm feeling hurt by you. I don't know if you intend to do it or not here's my evidence, can we discuss this? And sometimes they'll be shocked and change their behavior.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Well, tell me, Bob, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we talk about some of your favorite things?
1: About some of my favorite things. Um, So just a little bit of mental provisioning, just I would sort of, on the no jerk rule stuff um, and uh, the jerk survival guide stuff that I, I would end with is that many times we as human beings are in situations where uh, we feel as if uh, we're being wronged or people are treating us badly. And there's a bunch of evidence that um, we human beings have really bad self-awareness. And the worst person to ask if if they're a jerk or they're being oppressed by a jerk is somehow or another us. So my big guideline is to be slow to label other people as jerks because we all tend to have these, they call it self-enhancement bias but to be um, relatively fast to label ourselves as jerks because a lot of times we are part of the problem. And so I guess that's one. And then the other part is uh, is that um, if we're in organizations where there's nastiness, uh, and you know the way I put it is is that if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, that taking responsibility for not just not being a jerk yourself, but helping to defend others, weaker people, to me that's, if more of us would do that, the world would be a a better and and less jerk-filled place. So those are two of my big sort of uh, takeaways and lessons that I've learned.
0: Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Well, now can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: Just outside of the jerk stuff in general? So one of my favorite quotes in my definition of a great relationship, and it's a little bit related to the jerk stuff because you have to be civil, is is that... uh, the best learning relationships I have are uh, when you're with people where you fight as if you're right. So you actually argue and push your perspective and you listen as if you're wrong. And mm-hmm. this idea of fighting as if you're right, listening as if you're wrong, to me, that's the hallmark of what a, a successful learning model is because you do want to have people have strong points of view, but to have, if you will, the the courage and, and the conviction to push a point of view, but at the same time, the humility. Ability to actually listen—the the best leaders that that I've dealt with, the most effective ones—they really, really have that ability. I, one person, I think of somebody who I, I really admire, who is also not a jerk, um, is—and um, I got to know him fairly well the last few years—is Ed Catmill. Ed Catmull is the president of uh, uh, Pixar Animation and the um, president of Disney Animation. So he's 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 been in. Um, involved in leading two major things. One is, uh, building almost from the very beginning, well, really from the very beginning, Pixar, which is one of the great, you know, startups to be creating, came a great animation studio. And then he and uh, John Lasseter in particular, uh, they turned around Disney animation studio. So these are really great leaders. And, uh, the thing that, that I really, um, admire about Ed, Ed is he's, whenever I've had long conversation with Ed, I ended up having arguments with him and, and he, by the way this is a guy who argued with steve jobs for 25 years he's argued mm-hmm. with the best and he said steve never abused him by the way so you hear people who say steve uh, he has a reputation of being a jerk and some people might say that but uh, ed catmill did not have that kind of relation with steve but he said we sure argued a lot because uh, that's what it was was like with Steve, but, but it's such a sort of like respectful sort of interaction. And, and that's very much the culture of, of Pixar is this notion of people give one another criticism, especially among the various directors they have, but there's a huge amount of mutual respect. So that ability to argue as if you're right and listen as if you're wrong and treat people in, in, in a respectful way is one of the th- things that's really most important to me and the kind of relationships that I try to seek out and the kind of person I try to be in intellectual and personal relationships. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. And now could you share with us a favorite book? Ooh, a favorite book. I, I got actually got a list somewhere on my website of twelve favorite books, but uh, we were talking about the D school, so I'm going to pick a weird one. Uh, you mentioned Kim Scott's Radical Candor. If you're going to pick a relatively recent book, that's my favorite book. But my favorite creativity um, book of all time it's 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 called Orbiting the Giant Hairball and orbiting the giant hairball it's it's written by this guy named Gordon McKenzie he passed away a few years ago uh, Gordon McKen- McKenzie his job was the creative paradox at Hallmark cards and what and what uh, orbiting the giant hairball is about is it's how it's about how to survive essentially a large organization where you're a creative person and to and survive it with some grace, some humanity, and to make it more creative. And the reason it's called orbiting the giant hairball is his argument is that if you think of the, the, the sort of corporate bureaucracy and everything is the hairball mm-hmm. is that if you spend, All of your time in the middle of it, you're going to completely lose perspective and lose your creativity and lose your soul. But if you are completely detached from it and you never come in to the organization at all, you can't learn their needs and you can't, if you will, um, give anything back. So his argument is you should be in orbit around it so you kind of are almost in touch with it. And every now and then you land and learn stuff and Pause of what you've learned, and then you go back in orbit. So that so that's kind of the main idea of the book. But he's a he he was a famous uh, card designer, so it's got some really weird sketches. But but I th- there's a spirit. It's a, it's, a, it's a short little book, but there's a spirit of that book that that I absolutely love. So that's one book, and then my other book on on um, uh, on the completely other thing. Some of my research is on organizational change and scaling. Uh, uh, that uh, one of the most astounding stories I've ever read is it's called Path Between the Seas. It's by David McCullough, the famous historian. Mm-hmm. It's about the building of the Panama Canal. One of the most amazing stories of what it takes to get something really, really hard done under a difficult situation. Uh, just a beautifully told story. So those are completely different books. One is about how to survive as a creative individual. And the other thing is how to do innovation at the most massive possible scale for the time building the Panama Canal is just astounding. Oh, beautiful. Thank you.
0: And now, could you share with us a particular nugget or something that you share that really tends to connect, resonate, get folks nodding their heads
1: and taking notes? You're asking interesting questions, so I would pick maybe uh, two things, and 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 they're completely different. One is, uh, so it, it's it's sort of the grass is browner lesson or life is met. See, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned, and it sounds like you've learned it in your life some too, that um, a lot of times when people are in situations where there's organizational change, where there's something innovative, something, it could be a startup, an organizational transformation, um, it could be starting a new role. It just seems so difficult and so painful. And people say to themselves, oh, there's got to be somewhere some place that I can go it's got to be much better and sometimes that's true but a lot of times it's because for many of us and I include myself that it's hard for us to accept that life is fundamentally messy and we don't know exactly what to do every day and in some ways we kind of got to got to embrace the mess and and one of my favorite examples of this is uh, some years ago I was I was doing a, a like a, a speech at a large law firm it was about organizational change and uh so if any of your listeners know how it's sort of a, a meeting of a large law firm works, <clears throat> the partners meet, they'll have affinity groups. So you'll have, I don't know, the, the, the lawyers who went to UC Berkeley, you'll have the female lawyers, you'll have the gay lawyers. You'll, I mean, every affinity group of, of possible lawyers will meet for breakfast. The fee, I already said the female lawyers. My, my wife used to be in a large law firm. Well, this law firm had the Grasses Browner Club. These mm-hmm. were the lawyers. So There's like eight of them who left for other law firms, but it wasn't. It was much worse than the one they left, and they came back, and now they appreciated it. <laughs> so this idea that life it, life is messy, and then and then the other thing, and I, I talk to my students about this a lot, and I've had the the great privilege for now more than thirty years to teach it, uh, well, a university I never could have gotten into as an undergraduate, Stanford University, in. They're such smart kids. They're so good, and and, and really, they are, they are. I mean, there's a few exceptions everywhere, but they are generally such the most wonderful, well-meaning people you've ever met in your life. But Stanford and Silicon Valley are such work-focused place. We focus so much on careers and striving and everything. And and so what I tell them, and I learned this from the guy, I sailed, Ray sailboat with for years named jimmy maloney uh we raced together for years and every weekend he would say works overrated work sucks works overrated and one day he and his wife lit they did the classic thing they sold everything they they bought a sailboat they're excellent sailors, and they went cruising for two years with their three school-age kids. And so he actually did it, and, and he's a very happy person. Actually, he's working about two days a w- week now. They live in New Zealand, and he's raised two champion. He's got three kids. These kids are really good sailors. One of them was just on the New Zealand boat that won the America's Cup, and the other one, uh, the young woman Alex, she just won a silver medal in the Olympics the year in two thousand sixteen. So he's raised some really good sailors. Uh, but but I re- I really like that that notion of that sometimes work is overrated, and uh, when you look back on your life, that old cliche that nobody ever says, "Gee, I wish I worked more." I think it's good to start instilling that uh, in ourselves and uh, as as you. Even when people are young. So those are, I guess, two of my, but life's messy and work is overrated if I was going to pick two. Oh, perfect. Thank you.
0: Well, Bob, tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: So uh, I have a, a website, bobsutton.net, and uh, thank goodness, my absolutely, uh, Liz Mortadi, my absolutely wonderful web designer. She's really helped me get it in shape. So most of the stuff that uh, I've been talking about, if you want to learn about it more, Uh, that's a good place to go. You might want to look at 13 Things I Believe, which is right on the website. That's one of my sort of philosophical statements. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to miss Liz. I just found out she got a job at Nike picking the colors of sneakers. So she's got oh, cool. a really, so I'm, I'm losing her. <laughs> that sounds like a real, if you're a designer, that sounds like a great job. So I'm really happy for her. But uh, bobsutton.net is a good thing to go, good place to go. Or you can follow me on, on Twitter's at work underscore matters, but uh, bobsutton.net has everything that, that you'll want, I guess. All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking this
0: time. There is just tons of wonderful gems of insight. Like I think that there will really be real human beings who can take this and just have it be a lifesaver in terms of the daily experience of work. So thank you for enriching us in that way and
1: keep on doing what you're doing. Thanks, Pete. It was great to talk to you. Now I have a new coping sort of mechanism. I love the thing you did with your director. That was really cool. So thanks for teaching me that. Oh, thank you.
0: All right. I really appreciated Bob's take there. And I also really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really, really dug what Bob had to say about forgiveness, that even if it doesn't help the offender, it helps you, your mental health. And in a way you are victorious. You have a win for yourself. And I think that's pretty cool is that you have that power, that agency, the free will to just go ahead and forgive folks, even if you can't tell them or they would not receive you telling them that you can be released from some of that bondage there, which I think is pretty powerful. So again, if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep 204 And I hope you'll stick with us for our next episode. We got Craig Ross coming up. Craig is talking about key choices that liberate energy and destroy distraction and make great results happen. Until next time, peace.